Patrick Nunn, with me now, is here to talk about his recently published book, The Age of Memory, Ancient Stories, Oral Tradition, and the Post-Glacial World. Patrick is the author of several other books, including the popular Vanished Islands and Hidden Continents of the Pacific. He is at present Professor of Geography at the University of the Sunshine Coast, but is well known for the work he undertook in the Pacific Islands, where he was for 25 years part of the faculty of the University of the South Pacific, holding the positions of Professor of Oceanic Geoscience and Pro-Vice-Chancellor. His early work on the and I'll try and get this right, on the quaternary geology and tectonics of many islands and island groups in Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, and Vanuatu still represents the, the, the latest word on many of these issues today. Patrick has been a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the IPCC, in the news quite recently for producing some report. Um, <laughs> And in that role, he was uh, the co-recipient of its 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. He's also been awarded the gold medal from the Royal Geographical Society of Queensland, and his world-class research in climate change has been extended with the announcement that he will be the lead author on the Small Islands chapter of the next assessment report of the IPCC, scheduled for completion in 2022. Please welcome Patrick Nunn to Millennium. So, Patrick, this is a book which is kind of brimful of ideas, but <clears throat> at its core, it seems to me, is this belief that indigenous mythology is often, here's another word that I have to work on a little bit, humoristic, which is to say, in nature, which is to say that the stories they tell are considered to be based on real events and people. Yes, and look, I'd just like to thank you all for coming this evening and for that very, very warm welcome. And Stephen, thank you for inviting me, and it's, uh, it's an honour to be here. Um, I, yes, I think in the past, um, particularly scientists who, who tend to be very, very narrow-minded because of their training, they, they tend to think of myths and oral histories, oral traditions, um, as something that is largely sort of fictional and um, really not worthy of serious scientific consideration. And um, it certainly came to me from my time in the Pacific Islands that people who are non-literate, who can't read or write, um, can retain huge amounts of information um, not just practical information, but information about history and geography. They can retain that and they can pass it on as they have been for generations um, to, to their children and to their grandchildren. And uh, I really became convinced that um, there were extant memories of events that occurred um, a long time ago in the Pacific. And when I moved to Australia in 2010, um, starting to read and to learn more about indigenous Australian traditions really brought it home to me that we have here true euhemeristic uh, myths um, in the sense that these are memories of events that occurred sometimes thousands of years ago dressed up in the language of myth which um, was really the way that people had of rationalizing it at the time. Um, you know, yeah. seven, six, seven thousand years ago, um, you know, they didn't have the benefits of what today we would refer to as scientific knowledge, and so they rationalised it in ways that made sense to them. Yeah, and one of the, I mean, one of the things that you, since you came to Australia, as you say, you've been particularly interested in um, Aboriginal myths because, in they, the Aboriginal culture is really the longest living continuous culture in the world, is it not? Well, absolutely, and uh, you know, I, I think most scientists in Australia would say that around 65, 70,000 years ago was when the first 
people arrived in Australia. Um, we're pretty sure they, they arrived somewhere up in, uh, in Arnhem Land. Um, and since that time, they have been largely isolated from the rest of the world. And I think that's what really makes a difference when you come to consider their oral traditions and their myths, is that these stories have not been um, polluted, if you like, by contact with other cultures who've brought in their own myths. And um, so, so they, they remain very much uh, a sort of pure stream, if you like, of information that, yeah. that you're right, is unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, but you're not interested just so much in that for, for the kind of historical or the uniqueness of it. You're interested in the in the, the fact that you, because of this, because they haven't been mixed with other myths, you can actually now use empirical research into through carbon dating and kind of things like that to prove that some of these myths actually refer to real things that happened. I mean, if you spoke to an Aboriginal person, they would say, of course it did. Yes. But um, nobody else was prepared to listen to that. But you've, li you've been listening and you're saying, well, actually, yes, the carbon dating proves that it did. Mm. Is, that, is, that what, is that right? Yeah, e exactly. And I mean, I just, I just pick up on the, the little anecdote that you said there. I mean, I was in Fiji in January this year and I was in a community and they had, did have a volcanic eruption probably about 2,000 years ago. And, and they told me stories about this eruption before. And I went to them and I said, hey, science has, has demonstrated that your stories are correct. And they looked at me like I was an idiot. And they said, well, of course. <laughs> what did you expect? <laughs> um, going back to your bigger point, um, which is, yes, so we can use science to, um, and the wording here is, has, to be, has to be very, very clear. Um, science is really corroborating um, the indigenous stories. So indigenous stories in Australia are about volcanic eruptions that occurred in far north Queensland, in southern Australia, um, what, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago. Um, these um, can be dated fairly precisely um, using things like potassium argon dating. Um, and a, a lot of my own research in Australia at the University of the Sunshine Coast has been focused on what I would call drowning stories. So um, my interest as a climate change scientist um, is also in the past as well as in the future. Uh, and we know that at the end of the last ice age, around about 16,000 years ago, uh, the sea level started to rise. And around Australia, it stopped rising about 7,000 years ago. It got to its present level about 7,000 years ago, and it stopped. Um, now, we have stories or groups of stories from indigenous Australians um, at 23 places all around the Australian coast that recollect a time when the sea level was lower and when the sea level started to rise and started to drown lands with which they were familiar. And we're talking about and vast areas of and land. We're is, about I mean, this vast is the extraordinary areas. thing we're talking about. Yeah. So yes. the coast might in places have been Correct. hundreds of kilometres further Absol out. Absolutely. So Australia has shrunk by 23% since the yeah. last uh, so people, ice age. So people lived, they had, they, they had several hundreds of generations perhaps uh, had, lived, had lived on bits absolutely. of land that are now yes. under the yeah. ocean. Um, and, of course, the neat thing about the drowning stories is that because we know sea level got to its present level 7,000 years ago, and it's pretty much stayed there ever since, um, that those stories must be more than 7,000 years old. So the observations on which those stories are based must be more than 7,000 years ago. Um, and, and one of the interesting things that I got from reading your book, because, I mean, I, I knew the sea levels had risen, but somehow or other it never kind of occurred to me that, of course, people have been living on the landscape where people, where, where, where the sea inundated, but it didn't actually happen evenly. So it, 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 there were periods when it was happening very, very rapidly. I mean, uh, uh, have I got this right, that, that like kilometers were 
being covered in the space of a month? Is that is that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mean, so, so you know, it, it, people it was were living even. somewhere, and yes. then a month later they had to move five, six, seven kilometres back. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Correct. At certain times. At certain times. Um, particularly, um, particularly up in Arnhem Land, um, where you know you've got or perhaps 1,500 kilometres of coastline that has been submerged since the last ice age. Um, also down in the Great Australian Bight, um, off uh, Eucla and places like that, you know, you've had hundreds of kilometres there sort of uh, chewed off the continent as a result of sea level rise. But, you know, the really incredible thing for me, and I, I, I still wake up in the morning and sort of wonder whether I've actually got it right, but the incredible thing for me is that people can remember that time. Um, because I suppose for anyone who's been conventionally trained as a scientist in the Western tradition, you, know, you, you start to think, well, you know, oral traditions, well, two or three hundred years at the most, you know, but seven or eight thousand years, I don't think so. Um, so so it's, it's, it's a real, I think, jump, and, and that's what I've tried to put together in this book, that, you know, this is... This is not Graham Hancock. This is, this is not, you know, coming out of left field. This is evidence-formed science. Um, you know, that I have thought very, very carefully about and I'm convinced is, uh, is correct. And I think now the scientific world needs to sort of sit up and, and, and think, well, what does it all mean? And, and there's a, a kind of anthropological quotient to this as well, because one of the things that you've been looking at is the, the conservative nature of the society that allows... Because, you know, if, if I tell... Uh, or if my grandfather tells me a story or tells my father a story and my father tells it to me, because of the kind of the different inputs that are coming to me and because there's no strict law governing the way that that story is told, it will change intergenerationally. But what you're saying is that these stories were told according to law and so they were told in a very specific way that was handed down in a very specific way. That's exactly right. I think what we have in Australia is, if you like, a, a sort of perfect storm of circumstance. You have an environment that is comparatively harsh and therefore, if your children and their children are to survive in that environment, you need to give them all the information you have that is germane, that is relevant to their survival. And you need to pass it on in a way that they can understand and a way that they will repeat faithfully to their children and to their grandchildren. Um, so I think the harsh environment, but also the isolation, uh, the fact you didn't have other groups coming in and, and sort of stirring the pot, so to speak, of knowledge, if you like. So, um, yes... So the inevitable conclusion is that for 300 to 400 generations, um, these stories have been passed down um, faithfully um, uh, in ways that reach us today where we can understand. Um, we, we can understand what they are, are referring to. Um, and it hasn't happened in other cultures. So this book is not just about Australia. I've, I've also done quite a bit of work in northwest France as well. And uh, I think in, in Breton cultures and in uh, Celtic, uh, Celtic cultures uh, in Wales and Cornwall and places like that, you've had a similar degree of isolation. Not as much isolation, but you do have stories there that we seem to be able to date back maybe eight or 9,000 years. Um, but it's certainly not as clear as it is in Australia. Yeah. Now, I don't mean to move too far away from your book, but speaking of rising sea level, I, I can't help but comment <laughs> on the fact, as, as you were, as one of the authors of the uh, Intergovernmental panel on climate change. How, how did you react when the Deputy Prime Minister referred to it as, as some report the other day? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not really in the business of giving political um, opinions, and I, I, 
suffice to say I was really disappointed. And, and disappointed because a lot of my research and a lot of my research students are working in the Pacific Islands. And there are dozens of communities that I could name um, that have been experiencing increasing problems resulting from climate change over the last 50 years or so. And, and they're getting worse. Um, you know, there are communities I go to um, in Fiji that, that I go to regularly. And, um, you know, when the tide is high, you, you, you can't go from one house to another, you know, without getting water up to your knees. Um, you know, and I'm telling these people, you know, you need to start moving up the hill. Um, they said, no, 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 the sea's going to go down. Okay, 10 years from now, it's going to go down. God will look after us. And, and th this kind of thing. And I, I, I'm not making value judgments here, but I'm just saying that, you know, the Pacific Islands are in huge need of um, assistance. And that doesn't mean just chucking money at them. It means trying to understand their worldviews, engaging with those worldviews, and, and trying to come up with solutions that will, will help them survive in, in, in the future. Um, so I, I find a lot of uh, Australian commentators um, horrendously lacking in sympathy um, for their near neighbours. Um, I, I mean, to add insult to injury, we also, as I'll be talking about with um, Gillian Triggs in a little while, they, they, the Australian government has a very unsympathetic viewpoint on refugees. And so here we have these nations, these island nations, who are suffering because of uh, the climate change, but they must, you know, on top of, the, top of that, they must be concerned that, you know, should they need to leave their homelands, where are they going to go? Who's, who's going to accept them in the present climate? Well, it, it's very interesting. I, th I think a lot of islanders would prefer to relocate within the Pacific Islands region uh, if they possibly could. And there are certainly negotiations happening at the moment between the government of Kiribati and the government of Fiji um, that, that I, I know quite well. And, uh, um, you know, the idea that, you know, there are, you know, perhaps 30 islands in Fiji where no one's living today. And if those islands could somehow be made available um, to people from elsewhere who are being forced through no fault of their own, out of their own homelands um, and yeah. into these places, that would be um, a, a good solution. And look, just one last question. It's a very personal question from my point of view because I'm, I'm just curious because here you are contributing to these extraordinary reports that are, that are, are painting the world like it is. I just wonder how you... I mean, there's a, a, a neologism or, a, or a, a new phrase that's come into being which we call ecological grief which is people who are dealing with the facts like you are dealing with. How do, you, how do you personally deal with that, with the awareness of what's happening and sometimes an inability to have any effect on, on the people who are, who are capable of change, making the change? I think as a scientist, I have been trained or have trained myself to be detached um, as far as possible. Um, so, and I think as... For a scientist to lose that sense of detachment really means that he or she starts to lose a bit of perspective. I, I think there is always going to be a need for people like myself who can stand outside and say, no, that's not going to work, or that's the right solution, um, and trying to sort of take themselves out of the equation. That said, it's, it's horrendously difficult. Um, you know, I, I spent 25 years of my life in in Fiji, and, uh, and you know, I, I go back there now, and I see the, the condition that people are living in and, and what they are being confronted by. And, and of course, I'm not detached, um, but professionally, I have to be. Sorry. 
Don't look, no, thank Patrick, we're out of time. Thank you so much no, indeed for, for, for coming to talk to us tonight. Please put your hands together for Patrick Nunn.